Good morning. And Happy New Year. First of the year is, to me, always an exciting and challenging time. It's an opportunity to look ahead, to leave behind, if needed, some things, and look ahead to purpose and goals we hope to accomplish. Here at Central, we have, a few years ago, just arbitrarily designated January to be Missions Month, which was an opportunity to do a couple of things. First of all, to think about uh, the work we are supporting and doing around the world and here in Ada locally uh, through our missions program and outreach efforts. And we'll continue to do that uh, as we're able throughout the month. We got to hear from Luis Estrada this morning before the or after the announcements and operation, um, our association Building Hope and the good work they're doing there. But also it's an opportunity to focus on the mission, the task, the purpose of this congregation and to renew our commitment to what we hope to be doing uh, right here in our very own lives, in our very own home. Uh, as we think about then that mission and that task, I am reminded of the Apostle Paul because he's a person who seemed to have, at least later in life, a very firm grasp of what he believed his life's work would be. He was convinced, if you asked him, that his life work was taking the light of the gospel to the world. At any cost, at any price, in every way possible and imaginable, he was solely committed to that singular task. I want to read to you just a lengthy passage that was our call to worship this morning. This comes from Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 12. And listen to how he describes his purpose, his mission. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery has made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generation, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. There's a man with a purpose. He believes, first of all, that God has a purpose. He calls it the eternal purpose of God, that everything God has done in creation, in history, in the acts of the gospel, and in the acts of the apostles, and everything that he's done, God has had one purpose, which is realized in Christ Jesus. Paul believes then that his purpose, his life's goal, is to make known to the world what God has done. His purpose is to participate in the great purpose of God. 
All that's well and good, and I think all of us would agree. We'd like for that to be our purpose. We're not apostles per se, maybe not even missionaries or evangelists of that sort, but I think every Christian says, yeah, I'd like to be a part of God's big purpose in the world. I want to share the light of Jesus Christ in the world. Today's question we want to ask is, how did he do that normally? How did that get done? The gospel happens The message, the great mystery is revealed, and here's what God's up to in the world, and they want the whole world to know it, and and it happened. It went from a a handful of people in Acts chapter 2 to the rest of the world. Uh, It was slow, it was methodical. By the end of the first century, only about 0.01% of the population of the Roman Empire was Christian. By 300 AD, it's upwards of 55%. It was a very slow and methodical process, but slowly they got the word out of the good news of Christ to the world. How did they do that on a day-to-day basis? I wish I had their diaries. I've read a couple of biographies here lately. Uh, last year, I, just at the end of the year, I finished one that was called, titled The Pastor of Kilsyth, and, and it's the story of W.H. Burns, a, an otherwise unremarkable minister who is lost in history, except for the fact that he had famous sons. His sons became famous missionaries, and then they took the memoirs and diaries of their father and wrote a book about their dad as kind of a, to honor their father. And so we have this otherwise forgettable minister uh, we get to read about his day-to-day life. And we actually know a lot about what his life looked like because he had these diaries that say, and today I read Psalm so-and-so to Psalm so-and-so, and I studied this book, and I wrote this sermon, and I visited so-and-so from the church, and I uh, fixed the leak in the ceiling at the, uh, the church building, at the chapel. You know, it just has like day-to-day activity. We know exactly what he was doing. Biography I'm reading right now is a C.S. Lewis biography, and again, he's a guy who, could, who took copious notes on his own life, constant uh, journaling and diary. So from day to day, you know, well, I read this poem by Yeats today, and I, wrote, I, I read the Iliad yesterday out of the original Greek, and then I read the New Testament, and then I did. And you can know, like, from day to day what he was doing, you can read about it. We don't have the diary of the apostles or of ordinary members of the early church. We have the book of Acts, which gives us a summary of about a 20-year you know, period of time, 15 to 20-year period of time, that in 28 chapters gives you some insight into the big events as they transpired. But we don't get a lot of the day-to-day. We get some hints, and we'll look at those today. We don't get a lot of the day-to-day. We don't get one single chapter of the book of Acts that describes what like an ordinary Sunday morning worship service looked like. Did they start with an opening prayer? Uh, what did they do? Like, just to give you, like, from start to finish, a one-hour description or seven-hour description or whatever they did, you get one or two verses, like in Acts 20, where it says they broke bread, and Paul preached till midnight, and they sang a song, and they went, yeah, that's what you get. And so we would like to know more. How do we, from day to day, practically do this great work of taking the gospel to the world? When you look at the book of Acts, one thing you see early on are great big public sermons. Okay? So think again, this is, there's 28 chapters to the book of Acts. So chapter 14 is about the halfway point. 
So what I have on the screen is about the first half of the book of Acts. And what you see are great big public sermons. So in Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Peter and the apostles preached this amazing sermon. This same Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made both the Lord and Christ. And they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the mission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all those that are far off. And those that receive that word gladly were baptized, about 3,000 souls. And they continue in the apostles. Great day, great, great big event. But then what happened the next day is more or less summarized. And they continue steadfastly the apostles' doctrine. I don't know what, ha don't know what happened on Monday very much beyond that. Chapter 3 gives you another great big sermon. Sounds very similar to the one in chapter 2. Jesus is the Christ. You killed him. Repent. They do. More people come to Christ Jesus. Chapter 7, there's another sermon. This time, a little different sermon, same kind of point. This one's from a guy named Stephen who says, Jesus is the Christ and you killed him. In fact, it seems like you kill everybody God has ever sent you through all of human history and he reminds them of everybody they've ever opposed that was doing God's will. People take that especially well and they kill Stephen for having preached that sermon. At that point, the gospel begins to leave Jerusalem. It goes a little further out. Uh, chapter 13 is another sermon to Jewish people, but this time in Antioch. And it's a sermon delivered. Again, sounds very familiar. A sermon delivered. Jesus is the Christ. Here's the message. You need to respond to it. And then the last big sermon recorded is the first big sermon to the Gentile world. Paul about whom the second half of Acts is mostly about, goes to the city of Athens, the center of intellectual pursuits in the Greek world, the city that represented Western civilization as much as anything other than Rome. And he went there and he preached this magnificent sermon. And it, at the end of it, it says, yeah, that's fine. And they kind of ignore him. A few people believe, quite a few people ridicule him. And that's the last big public sermon in the book of Acts. Here's the point that I want to make. Because it records several of these big events like that, we're tempted to believe that there was just like a big, huge public sermon every day of the week throughout the early years of the church, and that's how it got done. And in fact, what I think you're seeing is the opposite. In the early years of the church, there were, yes, some real big like public venue sermons that reached lots of people at once and made a huge impact. But by the midway point of the book of Acts, that actually stops being normal. These large public events become increasingly rare, at least in the record, as the gospel goes out into the world. Once you get out of Jerusalem, once you get away from the temple steps, there's a different setting. First, they go into synagogues, which are clearly a much smaller setting than at the temple courts of the great temple in Jerusalem. And he's talking to smaller groups. And then as they go out into the Gentile world, it's even smaller than that. What becomes normal after this, there are essentially no more big public sermons after that one. When you read the rest of the book of Acts, the only time you get a big, long sermon recorded is a special occasion. What do I mean? For instance, in chapter 20, 
a group of elders from uh, Ephesus travel to Miletus, and Paul, before he goes to Jerusalem, gives them a sermon, to them exclusively, telling them to continue to shepherd the flock and to love their neighbor as their self because it's more, more blessed to give than to receive. Okay? A sermon from Paul to the elders. In chapter 22, there's a mob, an angry mob that tries to, let's say, arrest Paul. That wasn't their intent. But let's say they try to arrest Paul, uh, or worse, and he gives a sermon of sorts to them, to an angry mob. Not really a planned event. Okay? And then the remaining two sermons you get in the book of Acts are courtroom scenes, where Paul is on trial in front of a judge and maybe he, his attendants, and he's in a courtroom one-on-one, with a powerful Roman figure, and he takes that opportunity to preach the gospel. And those are the only recorded sermons in the second half of the book. See, it was a shift from early on. Well, if they're not doing lots and lots of these big public sermons, what are they doing? Large public sermons stop being the norm by the midway point of Acts, and instead you see a very different trend. Let me read to you some other verses. Here's Acts chapter 11. Peter is recounting how he took the gospel to the very first Gentile convert. It says, and he told us, this is he, Cornelius, told us, Peter, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Really a fascinating story to me for a couple of reasons, but one of them is, In the story of the conversion of Cornelius, you can read in chapter 10 and chapter 11, an angel of God actually appears to Cornelius. Think about that. That's that's not how I heard the gospel. Okay, That's pretty cool. That's also not how Cornelius heard the gospel. An angel of the Lord appeared to Cornelius, and the angel does not preach a sermon. The angel doesn't say... Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming to the world. He was crucified and slain. You should repent and be baptized. The angel doesn't say that. The angel also doesn't give him an invitation to go attend a local sermon. Or to even travel. To go find, go on a quest. Go to Jerusalem and meet an apostle. Find someone who will preach to you the gospel. What the angel says is, I want you to send for Peter, and he is going to come teach the gospel to you and your household. The location where the gospel would be shared would be in the home. An angel orchestrated the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to a home. And that becomes surprisingly ordinary in the verses that follow. For instance, in chapter 16, verses 14 and following, one who heard us, they go, uh, Paul goes down to the riverside. Again, not to a big, big event center, not to an arena, not to a convention center, nothing like that. He goes down to the riverside where there are women doing kind of ordinary domestic tasks and, and praying. And he says, there, there's one who heard us who is a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. 
Paul goes and he finds a place where people are doing kind of ordinary domestic things. And he takes that as an opportunity to share the gospel with a small group of people. Those people immediately incorporate their family into that. And then say to Paul, please come to my home and continue doing what you're doing right now. Share the gospel in my home. Uh, At the end of that same chapter, there's an amazing event in the city of Philippi where there are an apostle who is imprisoned and God acts miraculously and releases the chains that hold him in prison. But rather than leaving, he stays. And the jailer, we call him the Philippian jailer, the jailer says to him, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Immediately, see, they take it to family. They say, Let's talk to your family. Let's share the gospel there. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Four times in that section, it talks about his house, his household, his household, his house. Just over and over again, where is the gospel being shared? In the home is where the gospel was taken, even by apostles. Chapter 18 and verse 8 describes the conversion of a man named Crispus, which is a, this is a fascinating story too, because it's literally across the street from a public venue. Okay, read, read the verse before this. I should have put it on the screen. I did. Acts 18, verse 7. They're preaching in this town, and they are not allowed in the synagogue. But there's a man named Justice who owns the house across the street from the synagogue. And so they just go and they sit in, Chris, or in Justice's house and start preaching the gospel across the street from the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue comes over to hear the gospel, not in the synagogue, not in the big public forum, but in the home of justice. And it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Paul mentions this sort of thing in Corinth in his epistles. Uh, A little later, I'll get to it in just a second. When he's describing his work to the elders of Ephesus, that sermon I mentioned earlier when he preached to the elders, it says in that same section, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public, yes he did, and from house to house. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he reminded them, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. What's the trend? In the second half of the book of Acts, as the gospel is going out into the world, the big public events that started things rolling in Jerusalem become rare. And what becomes common is a family-by-family approach to sharing the gospel. In people's homes, to people's family, becomes the primary tool. Families were both the means and the goal of evangelism. Families were inviting apostles into their home to share the gospel at home. And it was families who were receiving the gospel and believing it together. 
in Western civilization, we've really individualized everything where we just anticipate every person has their own set of convictions, has their own set of goals, has their own set of routines that they do. The ancient world didn't think that way. You work together in little units called families. And those families, notice the word most often uses household. Who did that include? Whoever was under the roof. It might be two or three generations. It might be people that you had taken in who were working for you. It might be a variety of different constructions. But whoever was under your roof was the people you shared the gospel with. And they discussed it together, and they learned it together, they believed it together, they obeyed it together, and then they shared it together. And the family became both the means and the goal of evangelism. By families, to families, two families, four families, was the method throughout church history. It's not just something we see in the book of Acts. Probably the most well-known preacher of the ancient world, not today, you may not have heard of him, but one of the most famous preachers of the ancient world was a man named John Chrysostom. And in his preaching, he said these words, turn your home into heaven. You will do this not when you change the walls or rebuild the foundation. I put that one in just for my wife because sometimes she has things she wants me to do at the, on that, to the house, right? John Chrysostom says, don't paint, right? I mean, whoever, whatever wife needs to hear that today, okay? Oh, that's silly. He says, you won't do that when you change the walls or rebuild the foundation. But when you invite the Almighty Lord to your repast, God never disregards any kind of supper. What does he mean by that? He says, you know, as a family in a church, we share communion. And God is with us when we take that supper. John Chrysostom says, God is there for every supper. When a family sits down together and breaks bread together as a family, God's there. Where the husband and the wife and the children are in accord and united by the bonds of virtue, there is Christ among them. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. We apply that to a lot of things, some of them inappropriately. But what it does teach is that when people are doing what God says, God is with them. That applies to correcting a wayward brother in Matthew 18. It applies to the ordinary life of a family around a dinner table sharing the gospel together. Wherever people are doing what they're supposed to be doing together, God says you won't be doing it alone. Chrysostom says this in another sermon. If we thus regulate our own houses, we shall be also fit for the management of the church. For indeed, a house is a little church. Thus it is possible for us, by becoming good husbands and wives, to surpass all others. He says, you want to succeed at life? You want to achieve something great? Be a good husband and be a good wife. He said, that would be an accomplishment. To turn your, and I love how he says that, your house into a little church. That was quite literal in the time of the New Testament. We didn't read all of these verses, but you can go through the book of Acts and you can go through the book of Romans and then go through the book of 1 Corinthians and see how many times, quite literally, the household is the church. It's how it operated more often than not. And Chrysostom just says, that should be normal for us too, that we treat our homes as little churches, that we shepherd the flock at home first, our first congregation. 
Centuries later, in America, our, our most famous preacher, long before there was Billy Graham, there was Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he wrote these words in his farewell sermon. This is the last sermon he ever gave. He said, every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rule. And family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. If these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. Two really important phrases in that little bit. The first that might have slipped by you is the expression, means of grace. That has uh, technical significance for a guy like Jonathan Edwards, who is a theologian. Means of grace, baptism was called a means of grace. Communion was called a means of grace. It's what other church traditions call sacraments. It's a something you do by which you come into contact directly with the grace of God by doing it. And Edward says, sharing the gospel in your family is a means of grace. List it between baptism and communion is making sure the word of God is in your home. It's a means of grace. And then the second one that I think is really interesting, he says, if these fail, everything else will be ineffectual. Whatever other plan you have, whatever other objective you have, whatever ministry or program or idea we have as a church, if the families are not sharing the gospel in their homes, everything else will actually fail. That has to be the cornerstone upon which everything else is built. That was the message of the book of Acts. That was the message of John Chrysostom. That was the message of Jonathan Edwards. And today, it's the message I hope to share with you. The family is the mission. When you listen to Luis Estrada down in Honduras, who is he working with and who is he connecting with? Families. One family at a time, making sure there's food in their bowl and a gospel in their children's heart. One at a time, family by family. And that's also what we have to be doing here. You want to share the gospel in this community? Start at your own dinner table. Start in your own home. And see what wonderful things God has done. You can see on the big banners behind me, we have uh, sort of a theme for this month and really for this year and I hope forever. We want to make your church a little, sorry, I knew I was going to say it wrong. want to make your family a little church in order to make the church a big family. The church is going to be comprised of families. The church will be as strong as our families are. These aren't two opposite goals. These are interconnected goals. These are things that have to work together. The family supports the church. The church supports the family. When you go home, see that as an opportunity to shepherd and to tend your little flock. When you come here, see this as an extension of your family and every person here a part of it. That's our mission here at the Central Church of Christ. It's the goal for this year and every year. What I'd like to do this morning is to conclude uh, in two ways. First is I'd like to say a prayer for our families in 2024. If you'd be so kind, would you be standing uh, while we pray together for families to begin this year? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, 
who placed your lonely people into families. We commend to your continual care the homes in which your people dwell. Put far from them every root of bitterness, the desire of vainglory and the pride of life. Fill them with faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness. Knit together in affection those who have been made one flesh in holy marriage. Turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents. And so kindle fervent love among us all that we may evermore be kind one to another. Father, you have blessed many of us with the joy and care of children. Give us calm strength and patient wisdom as we bring them up, that we may teach them to love whatever is just and true and good, following the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, you see your children growing up in an unsteady and confusing world. Show them that your ways give more life than the ways of the world, and that following you is better than chasing after selfish goals. Help them to take failure, not as a measure of their worth, but as a chance for a new start. Give them strength to hold their faith in you and to keep alive their joy in your creation. Almighty God, whose son had nowhere to lay his head, grant that those who live alone may not be lonely in their solitude, but that following in Jesus' steps they may find fulfillment in loving you and their neighbors. Look with mercy, O God our Father, on all whose increasing years bring them weakness, distress, or isolation. Provide for them homes of dignity and peace. Give them understanding helpers and the, wilderness to ex- the willingness to accept help. And as their strength diminishes, increase their faith and their assurance of your love. God, whose fatherly care reaches to the uttermost parts of the earth, behold and bless those whom we love now absent from us. Defend them from all dangers of soul and body and grant that drawing near to you, we may all be bound together by your love and the communion of your Holy Spirit and the fellowship of your saints. Almighty God, we entrust to you all who are dear to us in your never-failing care and love for this life and the life to come, knowing that you are already doing more for them and better things than we can desire or pray for. Direct us, O Lord, in all our efforts with your grace and further us with your continual help that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name and finally by your mercy obtain everlasting life. Grant us, God, in all our doubts and uncertainties, the grace to ask what you would have us to do, that the spirit of wisdom may save us from false choices and that in your light we may see light and in your straight path we may not stumble. By the might of your spirit, lift us to your presence where we may be still and know that you are God draw our hearts to you and so guide our minds, fill our imaginations and control our wills that we may be wholly your, utterly dedicated unto you. Then use us, we pray, as you will and always to your glory and for the welfare of your people. Lord, make our families instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let our families sow love. Where there is injury, let our families offer pardon. Where there is discord, let our families bring unity. Where there is doubt, let our families create faith. Where there is despair, let our families find hope. Where there is darkness, let our families be light. Where there is sadness, let our families extend joy. This we pray before the whole family of heaven. To the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.
This morning as we conclude, it may be that you are prepared to bring your family or your own personal life back under the control and direction of the Almighty God. If you would respond to the gospel of Christ, if you would need the prayers of the church, or if there's anything that we can do to help you to renew your purpose and the purpose of God, we're going to offer the invitation as we stand and sing, Won't You Come?